Talk to my friend Drew Allen. And I'll tell you what, he's a tough guy. A millennial conservative. I've, I've become a big fan of One your writing. One of the great young thinkers of our time. Appreciate his opinion. Conservative Drew Allen. As die-hard conservative. to this guy for wisdom. Well, the Republicans just did exactly what only Republicans do so well, which is to sabotage themselves, to go against the wishes of their constituents time and time again. That's what they just did with the uh, the gun legislation. Now, to be clear, so here, here's what happened. You know, we, we've got to get into the weeds just a little bit, and I like explaining this because it is a complicated, convoluted process, right? Understanding how these bills are passed, how they come about, what the requirements are. we got all these terms out there, the filibuster. I mean, how many votes are needed? What's going on? What just happened was a, a betrayal of the American people and our Constitution by 14 Republican senators. 14. Now, look, the way this works, the, the Senate, all they needed was a simple majority, Right? to bring this to the floor for debate. That's that's what was needed. 51 votes so that this gun legislation bill could even be brought to the floor to have a chance of being passed to begin with. But 14 Republican senators voted with the Democrats to bring this bill as it exists. It's an 80-page bill, and like usual, uh, they, they released the text of the bill. It's 80 pages long. And then they held a vote one hour later, which means what? The Republicans and the American people did not have a chance once again to see, to study what was in the bill. And that's always the point. They do this in the cover of darkness. They never allow time. They never, they never want us to have the chance to challenge and digest and question the merits of the legislation being passed, the pros and cons. So in typical fashion, one hour and then they hold the vote and 14 Republican senators went along with this. Now, the reason this is troubling, what's going to happen now, the way legislation actually gets confirmed, the Senate and the House are separate branches, right, that make up Congress. Um, The Senate and the House have to agree upon one piece of legislation, right? So in this case, the Senate just voted to send this bill to the House. And now the House will have to make alterations if they wish to the bill or not and send it back to the Senate for final confirmation. And obviously the House of Representatives, you know, I mean, this bill as it exists, the 80 pages, it it certainly does not meet the radical demands of the left, which is essentially just an abolishment of the Second Amendment, right? They want to get rid of, they want to ban assault rifles, as they call them. They wanted to change, for example, the legal purchasing age uh, to buy a gun from 21 to 18. Sorry, not 21 to 18. They want to change it from 18 to 21, Those things aren't in this bill, but I'll get into it in a moment, and this bill is not good news. But nonetheless, the House of Representatives faces a choice now. Are they going to try and insert and change this bill that came from the Senate to them and make it more radical so that it will not 
be voted for in the Senate, or will they accept the concessions the Republicans already made, send it back to the Senate for confirmation? And that's why, if they accept the bill, <coughs> pardon me, I'm still dealing with a <coughs> some kind of lingering uh, 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 problem with, with my throat congestion and so on and so forth. But anyway, so if the House just accepts this as it is and sends it back to the Senate, what that means is it's going to pass because it's filibuster proof, right? You, you know, the, the, the Democrats, you got to have 60 votes to end a filibuster. So the Democrats needed from the very beginning 10 Republican senators to agree with this legislation so that it could even uh, be voted for. And so the fact that 14 Republican senators went along with the bill as it exists, signed off on it, means that it's going to be passed into law. It's going to be sent to Joe Biden's desk. And they're aiming to do this ASAP before the July 4th recess. Um, Before I get into the nitty-gritty of what's in this bill and explain to you why it is problematic, why it is not a win and why it will not prevent any heinous acts of violence, crime, gun offenses going forward, I want to set the stage for you because this bill, right, it was the shooting in Buffalo, New York, and the Uvalde shooting in Texas that prompted, right, that the Democrats seized upon, took advantage of, right, never let a crisis go to waste to demand action. And the only acceptable action was their proposed legislation. Now, what you'll discover and what I'll explain, of course, is that nothing in this 80-page bill to address the pandemic of criminality, gun violence, murder in this country, mass shootings, nothing in this bill would have prevented either what happened in Buffalo or Uvalde. Now, Uvalde was the final straw, right, for the Democrats. We have to do something now. Well, Uvalde, I want to address because there have been revelations that have come out. Not only would this bill, will this bill, would this bill have not stopped what happened in Uvalde. Uvalde is, what happened there is a total breakdown of the laws that already exist. It's a failure of actually the police. Now on Tuesday, (coughs) pardon me again, (coughs) Steve McCraw is his name. He testified before a state Senate committee, uh, of course, that's investigating the shooting. uh, And he said that the initial response was an abject failure. Um, he's the, Steve McCraw's the Texas Department of Public Safety's director. And he said that the attack could have been stopped within three minutes. Of course, that would have depended upon the officers arriving on the scene doing their jobs. Their on-scene commander, who has still not come out from the shadows, who still has not been questioned, who is in hiding and protected who needs to answer for his commands to stand down and not go in and stop this shooter. Well, the point McCraw makes is that this could have been stopped within three minutes had they done their jobs. Had that on-scene commander 
not place the lives of officers before the lives of children. That's a quotation from McCraw. That's exactly what they did. You know, as a police officer, you, you, you essentially take an oath to put your life ahead of others, especially those that are defenseless like these young children. And out of fear for their lives, they didn't intervene. The officers had weapons. The children had none, McCraw told the Tribune in an interview. He's exactly right. The officers had body armor. The children had none. The officers had training. The subject, the murder, had none. And instead of stopping this in three minutes, as McCraw says could have happened, one hour, 14 minutes, and eight seconds passed. That's how long children waited. And the teachers waited in room 111 to be rescued. A rescue that came far too late and after more than 20 children and a teacher or two were murdered by this psychopath. But it gets even worse as McCraw goes on because he testified that one of the officers, one of the police officers, who was married to a teacher in the building, Ava Mireles, he tried to enter the classroom and stop the attacker. This guy had the guts, the chutzpah, the courage, the sense of duty and moral responsibility to go in and do something despite that commander's ridiculous, amoral, evil command not to do anything, to stand down. And what happened to this brave officer when he tried to do the job that all of his other police officers, those around him, refused to do? One brave man tried to step forward to do something, but he was detained and he had his gun taken away by other officers on the scene. That's why several episodes ago when this first broke, one of my unique perspectives... One of my daring and brave um, explanations, opinions, was that this represented cowardice, the lack of masculinity in America. That all these police officers were cowards. But one wasn't. Officer Ruben Ruiz. He tried to save his wife, but the officers in the school prevented him from doing so. And um, as a result, this is heartbreaking. So imagine this, Ruben Ruiz, right, the officer, the one brave officer that's willing, who tries to do something because his wife is in that classroom. His wife is a teacher. In addition to all these children, he's detained and has his gun taken away from him. He's prevented from taking action to protect his own wife. And the teacher, his wife, called her husband shortly after the gunman attacked her classroom. She told him she'd been shot and was dying. And in fact, that was the impetus. That was the moment that Ruiz tried to move forward into the hallway. His wife has been shot. She says she's dying to her husband. Her husband tries to take action and he was detained. They took his gun away from him and escorted him off the scene. Now, I want to say something and make a point here. This is what the Democrat Party and these 14 Republicans are trying to do to you and me. We want to take control. We understand there's danger out there. And as Americans, we believe in personal responsibility. We believe in unalienable rights. We don't look to other people to save us because they can't. <clears throat> we take control of our lives. 
And that's what this man, this brave officer, tried to do Ruiz, and they took his gun away. That's what they're trying to do to you and me. They don't want us to be able to be in a position to help others. This bill, this bill is a manifestation of what you saw take place here. Ruiz was in a position to do something. He was prevented from doing so because they took his gun away, escorted him off the scene. They want to make the rest of us defenseless just like Ruiz. Anybody out there who's a good person, a moral person who wants to protect his family, the message is you're not permitted to do so. And um, it wasn't just the police, though, that, that made mistakes. There were also failures, not just from law enforcement, but uh, from the school district. Uh, Bradley Hodges, uh, he scolded the lawmakers after the Senate Special Committee to Protect All Texans had convened for 12 hours, uh, in which they discussed these strategies for making schools safer. Is there any institutional bias in the Texas school system against implementing objectively objectively reasonable protective measures? The resident asked the officials during a section open for public comments. Why are school administrators refusing to take protecting kids seriously, he added. Hodges, this Uvalde resident, pointed out that state lawmakers were swift to implement lockdown restrictions for the COVID-19 pandemic, but said they were sluggish to act on gun violence in schools. They can't be bothered with locking a door? He asked, shaking his head in visible frustration. That's the opposite of school safety, he said. That is child endangerment on an institutional level. And that's the point, isn't it? We have all these measures in place that could have prevented this, would have prevented this. A locked door, for example, protocols that were not followed. And had those protocols that were already in place been followed through with, been enacted, been upheld, been utilized, had the police done their jobs, this could have been avoided. This could have been avoided in so many ways. The individual who, or police officer who saw him walking towards the school and did nothing took no action. Time and time again, this could have been prevented. You could go back to his childhood, torturing dogs and cats. Countless, countless moments you can look back to and say this could have been stopped. But in response, they want to take guns away from law-abiding American citizens. They don't want to address the real problems that took place, the breakdowns in the existing laws. And that's the point. That's the point of all of this. Everything they're proposing, everything they're proposing will not address really the root cause because they want to punish the law abiding for the sins of the criminals. Now, in this bill, one of the concerns, right, raised was the Democrats wanted to nationalize red flag laws, right? Those laws that failed to prevent the Buffalo shooter from carrying out his mass shooting at that supermarket, right? They had red flag laws in New York. They had red flag laws, and they didn't work. And so they want to nationalize those. Makes sense if you're an idiot and don't think. But anyway, one of the concerns of the red flag laws was uh, the denial of due process for the American citizen, right? So the idea behind red flag laws is that it permits a neighbor... Uh, somebody else in your life to report you to the police or to uh, to go through a certain system so that you find yourself in front of a judge who is uh, making the decision on whether or not you should be disarmed. And the point is, you haven't committed a crime. Someone has reported you 
based on something you said or something they observe or something they read that you write. Uh, How are you supposed to defend yourself? This is a denial of due process because you don't have a lawyer. Now, the bill pretends to fix this issue, but in reality doesn't fix it at all. The bill, for example, the 80-page bill they just, the 14 Republicans just voted to go along with, well, the bill does state explicitly that an American has a right to an attorney during the proceedings, but guess what? You don't get a funded, public-funded, taxpayer-funded public defender. You have to pay for your own attorney. So they can take your gun without charging you for a crime. They allow you a lawyer, but you have to pay for a lawyer out of your own pocket. Gee, I wonder how that could be abused. You know what this is like, by the way. Well, I'll make a couple of uh, analogies here, comparisons to, to change it so, so people out there understand, especially for the uh, occasional liberal listening to this program who just can't, can't see the light. You remember Morgan Wallen, the country star? He got canceled, I think that was back in 2021. I think it was last year, I believe. Well, he used the N-word outside of his own house on his own private property. He got home late from a night of drinking in uh, Nashville. He lived in the suburbs of Nashville. And he called his friend, who was also drunk, the N-word. He wasn't using it in the context of black people. He wasn't using it in a derogatory fashion. He was using it just like every rapper on the planet uses it freely in their songs. Now... Whatever, you can say, I don't like that word, you shouldn't use it. Look, that's not in my uh, vernacular, but there are plenty of things we say in private um, that we aren't proud of, you know, that could be taken and and, and used to ruin us. So I'm not going to play this cancel game, and I didn't. I actually came to Morgan Wallen's defense. I said, you don't have to um, condone his use of the word, but (coughs) canceling him is outrageous. So his neighbor, this video of him, the reason his cancellation came about is because his neighbor who lived across the street, they filmed it on their ring door camera. Talk about an invasion of privacy, huh? Or maybe you don't want to call it invasion of privacy. They weren't in his home filming it. But nonetheless, you got neighbors that are what, spying on you and reporting you? So that's how this happened. A neighbor that obviously didn't like him, that probably lives, uh, who uh, hate anybody who's a country singer, for example, because they might be not a lib, well, they gave the footage to TMZ. That neighbor, that neighbor could use red flag laws, for example, to disarm Morgan Wallen. They could have reported Wallen to the appropriate authority, said, hey, this guy's drunk, he's violent, I don't trust him with a gun. And Morgan Wallen, because I think he's pretty successful on the music scene, might be able to pony up for a lawyer to defend himself, but most Americans wouldn't have that luxury. This is what they do with the January 6th committee, that witch hunt. Bringing in Peter Navarro. Subpoenaing him. Forcing him to pony up the money for a lawyer. To run him into the ground financially. So obviously these red flag laws, it's a concern because they can be abused. Not only can they be abused, but even when they're utilized, apparently they don't work. As seen in Buffalo. So they want to nationalize. So they're not allowing... (coughs) the nationalization of it. Um, But they do, while they're not nationalizing and giving that to the Dems, 
Um, they are allowing uh, for funding, right? So the legislation includes $750 million in grants that are meant to encourage states to create so-called red flag laws. So they're basically going to reward people with federal money if they do enact them. So they're trying to incentivize it. So while they're not making it a national requirement, they're trying to do it through the back door by saying, hey, dangling money in front of their faces. If you just do these red flag laws, we'll give you we'll give you tens of millions of dollars, you know, pad your state budget there. Um, one of the other things in this that is alarming <clears throat> is, uh, well, it's not just alarming, it's ineffective. It's ineffective. You, you know, before I get into that next point, I want to make one more point after I mention Morgan Wallen. Uh, another analogy to how these red flag laws <clears throat> work in reality. So Twitter, whether you're on there or not, uh, this just happened to, to, this has happened to several prominent people, but it happens all the time. So Twitter is run by a bunch of communists. That's not a joke. They've admitted it on a Project Veritas video, but they're a bunch of commies who hate free speech. But not all free speech, just free speech they disagree with. Well, a bunch of leftists on Twitter, they can all go and report some conservative account holder for spamming or any number of violations. And then Twitter responds by suspending the account. That's exactly basically how this red red flag law stuff plays out. And at the end of the day, the point is, even if a criminal intent upon murdering is uh, prevented from attaining, obtaining a firearm because red flag laws are implemented, that person will find another way to access a gun. That's the point. Murder is illegal. He shouldn't do it, right? Well, he goes ahead and murders. Laws on laws on laws on laws without addressing the underlying current in this problem in this country that's really the problem, which is the proliferation of evil in this country, not teaching people morals and values. Watching too much CNN and CNN and MSNBC and being driven to hatred that leads to violence, just as it did with the attempted assassination, the assassin from California who tried to off. Kavanaugh and his entire family outside he was caught outside Justice Kavanaugh's home of course in Maryland by police apprehended and he was going to go kill him because Kavanaugh was going to vote to overturn Roe v. Wade Um, there's something called a boyfriend loophole I've never heard of this until now but this is a big thing this bill wants to tackle so currently federal law prevents those who have been convicted of domestic abuse against a partner They are married to, living with, or share children with from getting a firearm. So they're expanding this definition. It's very nebulous and vague. Um, They're changing it to say, uh, where is this? Okay, the, the, the bill they're proposing would ban anyone convicted of misdemeanor domestic violence who has a current or recent former dating relationship with the victim from owning a gun. That's according to the text of the bill. You may say, oh, that's fine. I mean, whatever. If, if somebody, you know, beats up a girlfriend, you know, they sh- it, it, domestic abuse, domestic violence is domestic violence, right? Okay, fine. <clears throat> well, guess what? 19 states, I'm going to cough one sec. <clears throat> 19 states already have enacted laws that close the so-called boyfriend loophole. California, Illinois, New York, 
Oregon, Washington, Vermont, West Virginia, Rhode Island. I can go on and on. But what are the names that really stick out? California, New York, Illinois, places with the worst gun crime, violence, murder statistics in the country. So they've got the boyfriend loophole. And so just like the red flag laws that don't work and prevent crime, they want to expand and solve this boyfriend loophole. Um, so who are these 14 Republicans that went along with this? This is what's so, so frustrating. You know, only two of the 14, by the way, are up for re-election. So they don't have to worry about it. They're not up till, you know, 2026 in, in many cases. Only two of them are going to have to answer for it in the midterms this November. Only two of them are running for re-election. So John Cornyn and Tom Tillis, well, they voted for this, and they're safe until 2026. You've got Blunt, Burr, Portman. They're retiring, so they don't care. You got uh, Capito, Cassidy, Collins, Murkowski, Romney, and Graham. And the only one of those up for re-election is Murkowski in Alaska. And then, of course... uh, Well, the only real surprise here was Joni Ernst of Iowa. I mean, that's a red rural state. And Todd Young of Indiana as well. And Young is the uh, second person after Murkowski who's actually up for re-election in November, but he's already won the primary in Indiana. So he might as well not be up for re-election because there's no way Indiana voters are going to vote for a Democrat over Young. So he's safe. They're going to vote for a Republican there anyway. And then there's Mitch McConnell, unsurprisingly. He's also not up for re-election until 2026, but he's probably going to retire anyway. Now, how should we react to this, right? Should we be outraged? Should we be upset with these people? Does it matter? I think it does. Because we're losing the argument. We are paving the way to the ultimate goal Well, we're paving the way for the Democrats, I should say, to achieve their ultimate goal, which is basically to just ban guns outright, prevent us from acquiring firearms. And it's all done in the name, of course, of, you know, well, what what do they call it every time? Common sense. Common sense. And there's no discussion, of course, of the Second Amendment. And and, I mean, I guess the question you could raise that I always ask, you know, what, what are these Republicans thinking? What are they thinking to betray the American people like this? I mean, one theory, I suppose, is that they think that this could be some campaign issue that they don't want to deal with. But none of them are running for re-election anyway. So, okay, maybe these Republicans are looking at it in the aggregate. Well, how do we protect our chances of, you know, winning as many seats as possible because we're team players, right? Republican team. How do we, we don't want this to be a campaign issue. We don't want the Democrats to give them anything. That's just stupid. That's just stupid. I mean, caving to the mob, caving to the left, doing what the left wants. I mean, abortion, the Roe v. Wade argument, you could say the same, well, you know, we, 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 I mean, you don't cater to the mob of radical leftists, and that's what this is appealing to. Time and time again, we lose out on the opportunity to actually explain to the American people why this doesn't work. I just did it. And I'm not even a politician. I'm sick of it. It takes somebody like me the day after this crap gets passed, when they only had an hour to read it, to explain it. They don't do this. They just go along with it. How hard is it to do this? It's not. It's not. Let me ask you a question. You know, how do you stop 
How do you prevent an American citizen without a criminal record from obtaining a firearm and committing murder? We can't even prevent criminals who illegally possess a firearm from committing murder. You see where this leads ultimately? It doesn't end until guns are gone and confiscated. Because you can make the argument all day, there's always going to be some killer who finds a way to get a gun and commit a crime. That's how they happen anyway. Criminals are doing those things, but they want to take away our guns, the law-abiding citizen, make it harder for us to attain, and they treat us like all of us are a bunch of wannabe murderers. You know, these bills do more harm than good. In the name of addressing one act of violence, they want to punish 330 million people who have never committed violence. This is the problem. But anyway, you know, those are just a few of the things in there. A few of the things in there. Um, you know, and I, I guess I should get back and circle back to the boyfriend loophole, but... You know, we, we can't even define what this means, okay? Somebody in a current or recent dating relationship. I mean, how do you administer this? I mean, uh, I mean, I, I guess my, my point would be that this is just a virtue signaling thing, closing the boyfriend loophole. How much of this, how many murders out there, how many mass shootings could have been prevented because... I don't know, someone in a relationship, dating somebody, committed some act of domestic violence or abuse and wasn't reported and their gun wasn't taken away. Do you see my point? This doesn't solve anything. It doesn't even address. They say we got to address Uvalde and we've got to address Buffalo. Those necessitate action. And yet nothing they're proposing here would have prevented either one of those things. This is a, they're frauds. They're frauds and they're lying and they're just taking advantage of a crisis. I I actually, before I get into some other things, I've got an article here I want to get into. And um, to finish off with the gun thing for now, it'll come back later. But, you know, if the the Republicans are thinking this is a good move for them to take a campaign issue off the table for the Democrats... Well, they're idiots because the Democrats have come out essentially and they're clapping and applauding because they're hoping the Republicans caving and betraying their base on this gun control legislation, this gun grab is actually going to suppress voter turnout come the midterms. So the Republicans are actually playing into the alleged strategy of the Democrats to begin with. This doesn't make sense. This isn't smart in any way. And And frankly... A recent poll found that 83% of Americans now say the economy is an extremely or very important factor in how they will vote. The economy, the number one reason people are going to vote in the midterms that's going to determine who they vote for, which party, is based on the economy. That's the singular issue. And here you have the Republicans compromising with Democrats to give away our Second Amendment right. And I'll tell you where this is headed before I actually move on. I know I've said it six times now, but I'm just, I get so frustrated by the Republican Party. I'll tell you where this is ultimately headed, what the Dems really want. 
They want to go after ammunition and gun manufacturers. That is their golden goose. That that's that's where they really want to put an end to the Second Amendment through the back door. They want to put them out of business so you can't even buy a gun or ammunition. They want to make them government controlled. And they want to do this by eliminating liability protections, right? So if someone shoots somebody with a gun, you can sue the manufacturer who produced the gun. Imagine if car manufacturers were liable for car wrecks, for drunk driving accidents. They'd go out of business. You wouldn't be able to find a car. And that's the goal of this. Now, I came across this great piece written by Frank Miele at Real Clear Politics, and he articulates exactly what I've been saying on this program for weeks and weeks and weeks. Um, he describes uh, what the Democrats are up to. He, he articulates the strategy here, and he, 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 he initiates by quoting Obama's chief of staff, Rahm Emanuel, one of, one of Obama's chiefs of staff. You never want a serious crisis. You never want a serious crisis to go to waste. And what I mean by that is an opportunity to do things that you think you could not do before. You could go to 2009 with Obama's American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, that stimulus program that printed and spent 800 billion dollars that was supposed to lift us out of a recession. Did it actually lift us out of the recession? No, it wasn't responsible. We'd eventually get out of a recession, but they used that to to further promote government dependency, right? Well, the, de- depend- the dependency of the American citizen on the government, right? Bigger government. And it was kind of a dry run for COVID, he calls it. Increasing public dependence on government, handouts. Extended unemployment benefits and stimulus checks, right? Looking to big government to save you. And, and then, of course, we went on to spend $6 trillion dollars on the numerous stimulus efforts throughout COVID. And he writes brilliantly that in the case of COVID, a payoff in exchange for the loss of civil liberties in the form of lockdowns and forced vaccinations. Do what we want and we will take care of you. That's the message. That's what this has always been about. It's preconditioning us, the public, convincing them to accept changes in autocratic rules that are illogical, that are impractical, they're not, and they're un-American. And this is, and I love the way he, he does put this into words in a great way. You've heard me describe this as well. By inverting the relationship of the people to the government so that the people no longer enjoy primacy, are no longer we the people, but rather we the government governed, it is possible to dictate over time a complete reshaping of society. That's what's happening. The gun illustrates that to a T perfectly. The Constitution guarantees us what? The, guarantees the right of the people to keep and bear arms. And it says firmly, this right shall not be infringed. But these Republicans and these Democrats, they want to convince you that they're not infringing on your rights. But they're actually whittling away at the Second Amendment and they're doing it piece by piece. First, they decide what kinds of firearms you can purchase and then when you can purchase them and then how many and then they require a license for concealed carry. And before you know it, it's gone. It's gone. Oh, well, whoops. Who cares about the Bill of Rights? We've already violated it this much. You've already given us this much. And that's the point of the red flag laws, supported by the gun law reform advocates. They violate the Second Amendment. And they violate the most precious guarantees of due process, as I mentioned. You haven't committed a crime, but you can have your gun 
taken away. Anyway, he goes on. He talks about immigration reform, energy reform, drug law reform, gun law reform, election reform. Who can be against the word reform, right? Reform, that's the trigger word, right? It, 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 it hypnotizes Americans. Reform, yes, yes. You know, and it's, it's amazing how we lose our ability to think freely when we hear the word reform. Reform is always supposed to be good, right? Well, no, it's like, it's like assigning a label of progressive to the Democratic Party. Nothing they're doing is progressive, it's regressive. It's rejecting the wisdom of all of mankind's collective history. Rejecting the, the perfect belief that our rights are unalienable, that they don't come from government. Anyway, I'm going to take a short break. I'll break. All right, and we're back at it. Drew Allen, host of the Drew Allen Show for the second half, maybe the you know, last third of the show. Uh, we'll see how much time we have. I got a lot to get to, as usual, per usual. Um... All right, let, let's move on for just a second. Um, I, I, I've got a big announcement here. It's not for me personally. It's actually on behalf of the Biden administration. Karine Jean-Pierre, who checks all the boxes of qualification for the Democratic Party. Uh, she's, she's, uh, she's black, she's gay, uh, she's stupid, and she's a liar. All four boxes uh, checked for her. She, she meets the qualifications to be a uh, uplifted Democrat spokesperson. Um, so she told us, I want you to hear, I'm going to play the clip for you. She told us, she guaranteed us, she gave, she, she, it's crazy actually. She, she tells us there is now a 100% chance of a recession. Here you go. I want you to hear her admit it. Finally, the truth is told by a White House press secretary. Go. And right now, we don't see a recession right now. That is not, we're not in a recession right now. Uh, right now, we're in a transition where we, we, will, we are uh, going to go into a place of stable and steady growth. And that's going to be, uh, that's, that's going to be our focus. Obviously, maybe if you're a first-time listener, you don't understand, but that's a sense of humor, it's called. Uh, but my point remains, and I made my point vividly, brilliantly, with the words of Karine Jean-Pierre. By denying that we're going to be facing a recession, by lying and telling us instead that, you know, things are going swimmingly, we know that a recession is actually upon us. It's just a matter of a little bit more time until we meet the strict criteria of two consecutive quarters of economic contraction. Um, let me remind you. Let me remind you what Jin Psaki, the previous press secretary, said about inflation to drive my point home further. People will react to the one number that will come up and Well, uh, obviously our analysis is going to be done by our economic experts. Uh, they continue to convey that uh, they believe the impact will be temporary, transitory, however <coughs> you want to refer to it. But they're looking at it closely, but I don't have any projections. However you want to refer to it. Yes, yes, yes. Inflation was transitory, don't you know? 
Except it's not transitory. It is upon us and it is destroying the livelihoods of tens of millions of Americans throughout the country. But they lied about inflation and they're lying about the recession and they're lying about the source and cause of the gas prices, which of course is not Putin. It's Joe Biden and the Democratic Party's policies. But there they go again. And so, you know, I mean, they tell the truth by lying. Basically, whatever they're saying, the opposite is true. That's how it goes with these professional propagandists. And the only way, of course, to solve the gas problem, which is killing Americans' wallets right now, is to increase production. It's called supply and demand. Do you know, by the way, throughout all of this, right, suppressing our own production, uh, and then, of course, this whatever's going on between Russia and Ukraine here, um, Russia has benefited financially, economically greatly by the war. Their export prices were 60% higher than last year, which means Russia's revenues because of their oil reached record highs. They earned nearly $100 billion in 100 days of the war. China, India, the United Arab Emirates, and France... Well, they're among the countries that have increased their purchase of fossil fuels from Russia. There is more than meets the eye to this Russia-Ukraine invasion. Now, that's not to downplay the absolutely disgusting, reprehensible actions of Russia, but that's also to condemn uh, the Biden administration, the deep state, And those world leaders out there, including China, the European Union, who are not being honest and straightforward about what's going on. Uh, It wasn't too long ago that the Zelensky, for example, was begging us to do more. You know, the the Democrats um, sat and watched a video and Zelensky's address uh, that played a Hollywood score of the destruction in in Ukraine. And of course, that led to us sending them over $40 billion of American tax, taxpayer money that, of course, there will be uh, no answering for. No accounting done of where that money spent, how it spent. $40 billion of your money and my money, our taxpayer dollars, just sent to Ukraine. Sent to Ukraine. Meanwhile, we can't, of course, spend 4 or $5 billion to secure our own border. Um, but I do have some good news uh, for you. Uh, we've got a bunch. There are 12 or 13 Supreme Court cases that have yet to be ruled on that they've heard, but there are four important ones that are forthcoming. Uh, I believe the Roe v. Wade overturning, um, that's going to take place on Friday, Friday, which is actually, I think, kind of odd. I don't know that they issue these rulings too frequently on Friday, but I would imagine they'll do it on Friday because they want to get the heck out of town because the moment they actually make the ruling that we all know is coming, which is overturning Roe v. Wade, giving the states the right to set their own abortion laws, well, we saw what happened with Kavanaugh already. Despite the ruling not being official, somebody tried to kill him, so they're going to get out of Dodge. So they're saving that for the last uh, ruling. But we've got others coming. And one of the biggest rulings, this is the good news section, by the way, for you, my American friends. Uh, we've got this, this, this case, West Virginia versus the EPA. This hasn't been discussed much, but it's perhaps actually the most significant case before the Supreme Court that we're awaiting their decision on. Essentially, the argument is that the executive branch of government, which includes the EPA, 
shouldn't be allowed to set rules and regulations around greenhouse gas emissions. Makes sense? Congress should be doing that. Congress is the legislative branch, not unelected bureaucrats. And this is a very, very intellectually honest argument that is being made. It's pragmatic, too. The Constitution gives Congress alone the authority to make laws and regulations to carry the force of law. And so we've seen the Democrats and other big government types throughout our history, recent history especially, abuse these unelected bureaucrats. Well, they're not abusing them. They're abusing us. But they're using these unelected bureaucrats and bureaucracies like the EPA to bring about their authoritarian will, to put their foot on our necks without having to go through election processes, without having to go through Congress. They're basically using bureaucracies to pass laws which they don't have the authority to do to force their agenda down our throats. And the EPA, of course, with the greenhouse gas emissions, I mean, they're using that to fundamentally transform the oil and gas industry, to put people out of business, to force their Green New Deal, for example. And so... This could rule that it's unlawful for federal agencies to make these major decisions without clear authorization for Congress. And that would put a boot on the neck of the authoritarians for once and stop them from their rapid encroachment on our rights. Their seizing of our liberty via these unelected bureaucrats. That's one. That's huge. New York State. uh, There's an argument being made before the Supreme Court that the concealed carry is a constitutional right. I mean, great timing given the fact that the Congress is now voting to take away our rights to own certain firearms to, you know, make it harder for us to procure them, even though it's shall not be infringed. So concealed carry, that is a constitutional right. You don't have to be a a a, a brilliant person to understand that. But New York State, for example, is a place where they virtually make it impossible to obtain a concealed carry license. You have to show that your life is under some kind of imminent threat, I believe. But it's ridiculous. If you want a firearm and you haven't broken any laws, it should be very easy. And there's no evidence that concealed carry uh, states that allow this and permit this have greater violence. In fact, New York State is a terribly dangerous place and they don't permit concealed carry. But that goes back to the very beginning of the show in which I'm trying to tell you they want to disarm the American citizen. They don't want us to have the ability to defend ourselves. They want us to be sitting ducks waiting for the Uvalde police to come and not rescue us. To leave us defenseless. We've got Kennedy versus Bremerton, which is about uh, school prayer. Now, this is an interesting case that revolves around this guy named Joe Kennedy. He was an assistant coach of the Bremerton High School Junior Varsity football team. And he used to go out to the midfield and pray at the conclusion of each game uh, with his players. And over time, this developed into a a thing that was widely accepted, uh, looked forward to, actually. And so players and even opposing teams would join Kennedy in these post-game prayer sessions. And the school feared a lawsuit, and they told him to stop. Now, I don't have a you know, an hour to get into this, but I'll touch on it briefly. I mean, the words separation of church and state don't exist in the Constitution. Now, they usually get this from Thomas Jefferson, who used the phrase separation of church and state, but it's also derived uh, from the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment, which, which says, of course, that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. 
but the entire constitutional system was derived from a religious persuasion and expression. The entire notion that our rights come from our creator is an acknowledgement of our religion. And George Washington in his farewell address mentioned religion at least six times. But the point is, the founding fathers didn't want a system in which the government was able to tell us what to believe, was able to control churches, decide, dictate what their doctrines were to be, decide what their their personnel would be. And so, you know, that was the point. And it was about freedom of expression. It wasn't to say you can't have Christian beliefs. You can't do this in schools. It was about saying that you can't prevent other religions from also doing the same. <clears throat> and so if this guy, a football coach, and his team want to pray after school, they're welcome to do so. You can't stop them. If you don't want to pray, you don't want to pray. I mean, I, the Constitution has been bastardized by the left for so long. People have been convinced of things that are wholly untrue. But I'll give you an idea because I, I, I personally am just offended by this continued assault against Christianity in this country. Judeo-Christian beliefs, which are the whole reason that we exist as a nation. Um, you know, in, in, in George Washington's farewell address, one quotation, for example, he says, with slight shades of difference, you have the same religion, manners, habits, and political principles. You have the same religion. He's not talking about, I'm not trying to offend anybody, but he's not talking about... Uh, Islam. He's not talking about atheism. The religion of the time was uh, Christianity, mostly Protestantism, as a matter of fact. But anyway, he says again, observe good faith and justice towards all nations, cultivate peace and harmony with all religion and morality enjoin this conduct. And can it be that good policy does not equally enjoin it? So he encourages religion and morality, says they're, you know, priceless. Of all the dispositions, Washington writes, and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion, and morality are indispensable supports. In vain would that man claim the tribute of patriotism who should labor to subvert these great pillars of human happiness. Religion is a pillar of human happiness, according to our first president. Let it simply be asked, George Washington says, where is the security for prosperity, for reputation, for life, if the sense of religious obligation desert the oaths. How about that? How about that? Religion, morality, tied together intrinsically in this nation's founding. Uh, and let us with caution indulge the supposition that morality can be maintained without religion. That's right. Without religion, there can be no morality. And that's the problem with the country, right? They don't believe in morality. Morality fluctuates. It's whatever you want. If you want to take your four-year-old to a drag queen show, fantastic. If you want to give your seven-year-old puberty blockers and encourage them to chop off their genitalia, that's great. No, no, no. In a moral society, that doesn't take place. There's no place for it. And um, this country is a Judeo-Christian nation in terms of its principles. So uh, go pound sand, you liberal, commie, godless people. Uh, anyway, <clears throat> but Dobbs, that's the case about abortion overturning Roe v. Wade. Well, we're expecting the announcement on Friday, as I said, so the justices can go into witness protection. <clears throat> um, all right, I got a little time here. I want, I want to just, just quickly, uh, because I love to do it and I do it frequently, I wanted to destroy, you know, Joe Biden's continuing to, out of one side of his mouth, he's blaming Putin for the gas prices. Out of the other side of his mouth, he's blaming American energy producers, which are prevented from producing based on his blocking them from drilling. Uh, and shutting down available accessible land for drilling. 
Uh, so he wants to have his cake and eat it too. Uh, but how hilarious is that? Is it not? It's Putin's fault that uh, gas prices are so high. It's the it's the producers. They're not drilling enough. But it's Putin's fault too. I mean, whatever. So you know, we know what they want. They want to destroy the oil and gas industry. And I actually firsthand, by the way, the other day I was talking to somebody. They were telling me they just bought an electric vehicle and they were so proud that they didn't have to pay for gas prices. I'm like, they they bought a new car. They spent more on a car than they would have spent on gas. So anyway, but but it's working in one sense, right? People are falling for this trick. Well, we just got an electric vehicle. All right, so let's all switch over to electric vehicles, right? That's going to save us all. That's not a dead end, right? Let's convert all gas stations to charging stations. Now, in 2017, I remember Rush Limbaugh talked about this. He was talking about this Canadian engineer who wrote an article. He walked through the math on this conversion. So let's just be ignorant mindless robots known as liberal Democrats in the country. Let's all convert to electric vehicles. There's 20 to 30 million cars in America. Let's make them all electric, right? We can't even provide electricity to the existing homes, but let's add 20 to 30 million electric vehicles to the grid without building any new uh, provisions for electricity, which comes from coal, by the way. Coal-powered, the dirtiest thing out there. Even if you aren't, like myself, a global warming alarmist kook. All right, so you need about 60, 50 kilowatt rechargers to replace one fuel pump at a gas station, okay? Um, about eight of the 350 kilowatt variety for every pump. So you need 60, 50 kilowatt rechargers or eight 350 kilowatt for every pump. Uh, so... That would mean 960 of the low-powered 50-kilowatt units at each rest stop and 128 of the high-tech 350-kilowatt versions. And by the way, these, these low-powered 50-kilowatt fast chargers cost about $40,000 apiece. Um, the 350-kilowatt, the big dogs, they cost $200,000 each. Even faster, they go for $500,000 each. Now, let's just say there's eight gas pumps typically at a gas station, right? Smaller gas station. We're not talking about the uh, Bucky's in Texas that I'm familiar with. Familiar with it has, you know, 65 pumps. Eight gas pumps. If you just switch to an electric pump with a 50 kilowatt output, you'd need 60 per gas pump. So you'd need 480 of these electric chargers to replace eight gas pumps. That's about $20 million of an investment. 19 million something, I believe. But that's not all. So each of these things, these chargers, so, so, so you need 30 megawatts of power, right? 30 megawatts of power at these stations if you replace them, if you, if you transition from gas to electricity, right? You need 30 megawatts of power. So that's the equivalent of enough power to supply 20,000 homes. So powering one station, right? So 30 megawatts is what would be required to, to provide the electricity that's fed to all the different pumps, right? Energy pumps that's fed into the cars. 480 of them, right? So powering one of these stations, 30 megawatts, would require the same amount of electricity as powering a city of 75,000 people. Do you understand that this is impossible? Even if you want to go along with this electrical dream, batteries have to be replaced on cars. So anyway, don't buy into this 
this this lie from the left. You know, I mean, they're trying to force this upon us, but what's the outcome? So let's say all of us switch over to electricity, right? I just told you how impossible it is, especially when you're dealing with the fact that the Democrats oppose building nuclear generators. They oppose building energy, any new energy sources. It's literally not possible. And so there's going to be a rationing of electricity. And what does that lead to? More government control. So I just want you to remember that because you got about 2,000 cars that, uh, a day that stop to fill up these stations. So you're asking these station owners to invest, you know, $20 million in investments. I don't know, 20 to $24 million to buy the chargers to provide the 50 kilowatts of electricity. I mean, I, it's just... I mean, this is so absurd and insane to me, you know, the, 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 these people, if you want to get an electric car, fine, it's always going to be a niche, niche industry, it always was, but they're trying to force it on us, and it's a dead end. I'm just telling you the pragmatic result based on that. Uh, but, you know, that's what the government wants, right? Dependency on them, rationing everything. You know, we could solve this oil and gas problem right now if they would just embrace the reality of supply and demand and, and allow, permit... Uh, American producers to actually drill. But here's the other here's the other dirty secret. They've already projected and said out loud that they want to get rid of, move away from oil and gas. So why would you invest money as an oil and gas company to drill for more oil if you know that in five years they're going to put you out of business anyway? That's the point. It's the same thing like, like tax code. You know, well, you know, uh, hey, businesses out there, um, uh, we, we want you to invest in more people. Uh, we want you to, to, to pay more money to your employees. But just so you know, in five years, we're going to raise the minimum wage to uh, $50 an hour. Oh, yeah, sure. Let me get right on that and invest in. You, you can't make decisions that way. So anyway, this is Drew Allen. I'm sorry for my voice today. God bless you all, as we say. And until next time.